As the impacts of COVID-19 continue to spread across the globe, the hospitality, travel and tourism industries, being the first one to experience the harsh weather conditions, are moving with agility and remain focused on understanding and quantifying their operational and financial impacts while still putting their people first. Decisions to shut down hotels, restaurants and cut down flights are disrupting the entire travel ecosystem and worldwide tourism. Welcome to Deloitte Voices. My name is Dishraf Elias and join us as we uncover the ways to thrive in volatile times. On today's episode, I'm joined by a team of industry experts to discuss how hospitality, tourism and travel can bounce back stronger. I'd like to first welcome Tiffany Misrahi, Vice President of Policy at the World Travel and Tourism Council, Ian Wilson, a hospitality expert, a Canal alumni and Emeritus, Senior Vice President of Non-Gaming Operations at Singapore's Marina Bay Sands, and finally, James Walton, our Deloitte Southeast Asia's Transportation, Hospitality and Services Sector Leader. Hi everyone, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Hi. All right, I would like to first start with the big picture. Could each of you tell us briefly what is your outlook within your respective areas? Perhaps we can start with you, Tiffany. Maybe before I, I just give the context in terms of where we see the outlook, maybe the picture in terms of where we stand today in terms of the outbreaks. So as of this morning, there have been over 1.3 million reported cases. The fatality rate on the basis of the reported cases is 5.5%. And what's interesting is that over 76% of cases are in eight countries alone. So in the US, Spain, Italy, Germany, France, China, Iran, and the UK. And according to the WHO, the pandemic is accelerating. So it took 67 days for the first reported case for the second 100,000, four days for the third 100,000, and just two days for the fourth 100,000. And so when it comes to the travel and tourism sector, we're very much in uncharted territory. And our sector is uniquely exposed and in a fight for its survival. Um, we did some research recently, which estimates uh, that up to 75 million jobs are at immediate risk in the travel and tourism sector. The research reveals that the potential travel and tourism GDP loss could be up to $2.1 trillion in 2020. And we're estimating that a staggering 1 million jobs are being lost every day in travel and tourism as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. Since we're talking from an Asia-Pacific perspective, I thought I would share that what we calculated at WTTC was that the Asia-Pacific region is expected to be the most heavily impacted region with up to 49 million jobs at risk throughout the region, which would represent a loss of nearly $800 billion to travel and tourism GDP. I, I know this is focused specifically on travel and tourism, but just to give you kind of a sense of the scale, when we compared the impact to previous crisis, we actually estimated that the global economic impact of COVID-19 could be more than five times the impact of the 2008 global financial crisis. All right. Uh, Ian, do you have anything to add on? Um, I mean, I would agree with the comment that we're definitely in uncharted waters. And I think the, the real wild card is how long does it take for things to restore? And 
I think the challenge is what I'd call the rolling nature of this virus. So we may be seeing certain regions starting to recover and looking more optimistic, but gains momentum from place to place. And consequently, I think that continues to ensure that there will be restrictions on travel. Um, because while your area may be okay, you will not be very keen on welcoming people into your country who may have been in other places. So international travel, in my opinion, is going to be impacted for a considerable amount of time. The opportunity lies probably more in domestic travel as people are comfortable kind of operating within the confines of their country. So if you live in a large country, that probably uh, is bears more optimism in a small country, it's more difficult. Of course, you still have to overcome the psyche of uh, the travelers. So it's been interesting looking at how China has recovered while commuting may have, for instance, returned to similar numbers. If you look at things like uh, cinemas, the traffic is still essentially flatlining and very few people are actually choosing to go there even though they may have the opportunity to. So restoring that confidence in the consumer will take some time. The other thing I would say is based on my experience with SARS, I I lived through that in Toronto uh, when it struck there. These things aren't really kind of a U or a V, um, but they tend to be much more uh, like a heartbeat. So you feel that you're recovering and then you get a little flare up and you have a number of cases emerge and it kind of takes you back to square zero and that uh, confidence tends to get eroded once again. So uh, sadly, I think that it's a difficult road ahead. Okay, James, do you have anything else to add? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree fully with all the points here that there's definitely some concern. We saw it in Singapore, for example, that just at a moment when it seemed like everything was under control locally, and then we saw a large number of imported cases and the imported cases started um, to, to then build up with locally transmitted cases again. And and look, there are countries out there where it's fairly clear that they don't have this situation under control and, and where given the nature of their populations and the nature of their living environments, there could be a a second wave. And that really is the worst case scenario. We've been doing some some kind of projections and modelings based on SARS and also based just on, on economic crisis of, of recent years. Um, and the optimistic scenario is that within a matter of three quarters or so, so probably around the end of the calendar year, um, we may start to see some upturn. But the pessimistic scenario, if you go to the extreme end, is that a second wave could mean that the economies do not rebound until all the way up to 2023. And although as much as we say that eventually consumption will pick up again, travel will pick up again, at the end of the day, most people go on a holiday once a year, twice a year, and you're not going to, you know, two years from now when this is all over, say, well, because we didn't have a holiday two years ago, we'll, we'll go twice now. So there will definitely be be lost sales, there will be lost market opportunities, and there will be costs incurred with no return. So really, there will be a lasting effect for many years to come. We just don't know yet how long that will be. Now, while the world as we know it seems to be at a halt, for example, in Singapore, the government recently announced a circuit breaker. How can companies keep their cash flow going and focus on liquidity? And how can governments help these badly affected sectors? Tiffany, Perhaps I'd like to hear from you in terms of government and policies. Do you have any thoughts on this? Um, so maybe just to give people a sense of the importance and the size of travel and tourism. So it accounts for 10.3% of global GDP. We're talking about 330 million jobs or one in 10 jobs on the planet. 
for major economies. So for the U.S., it's about 8.5% of the economy, which is about $1.8 trillion, 10.7% uh, of total employment. For China, uh, we're talking about 11.3% of the total economy and 10.3% uh, of total employment. We're very much a sector for the people, by the people. We're a labor-intensive sector. And I think the two biggest concerns, uh, both you know, from a private sector perspective, but also from a governmental perspective, are the people, so the workforce, and how do we ensure business continuity? And that very much requires policies that focus on workforce protection, that focus on liquidity, and that focus on providing fiscal incentives. I think that while the travel and tourism sector has proven its resilience over time, you know, whether it's from 9-11 to SARS that was mentioned to H1N1, I think this is very much an unprecedented threat that's going to really require governments to take immediate action to ensure the survival of this critical sector, which supports the livelihoods of millions of people and their families. One thing that's also important to know about our sector is that 80% of travel and tourism companies are SMEs. And so in that sense, what we're looking at within WTTC in terms of policies that you know, we're pushing for governments to implement and many have and continue kind of to reframe, to add, to build on our policies, one um, that focus on financial help uh, to protect the incomes of the millions of workers in severe difficulties. The second, you know, government must really extend vital unlimited interest-free loans to global travel and tourism companies, as well as the millions of small and medium-sized businesses as a stimulus um, to prevent them from collapse. And third, it's really important for all government dues and financial demands on the travel and tourism sector to be waived with immediate effect for the next 12 months. I think, you know, once we start seeing light at the end of the tunnel, we're going to be talking about different kinds of policies around recovery and what that looks like. But I think at the moment, it's really important to focus on kind of these three buckets. And while we're seeing different types of stimulus packages coming from different countries, I have to tell you, None of them are perfect, but most of them do focus on these issues and countries are learning from each other, looking to each other to see what's working and what's not working to hopefully really support both directly and indirectly the travel and tourism sector. Thanks, Tiffany. Now, James, in terms of cash flow and liquidity, how do you think companies can navigate through this? I mean, as Tiffany mentioned there, the, the, the nature of organizations in the sector, the vast majority are small, they're SMEs, and they really work from a cash flow point of view in, in many cases on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. So a severe disruption in in the cash flow can have huge consequences. But at the other end of the scale, you, you, you have the airlines and you have IATA saying that they believe that most airlines only have two to three months of, of liquidity to survive um, in any kind of crisis. Now, of course, the governments can help out the airlines if need be and by really targeting that that one organization whereas no matter what the policies are that governments come out with there will always be smaller smes missed so it is a time to check your credit lines defer any unnecessary spending make sure you're managing your receivables your payables your inventories we're seeing organizations asking staff to to use up their leave again just as a way of trying to reduce some of the uh, potential salary costs if there are government incentives, make sure you get your share of those and consider pricing and promotion strategies. Again, it, it depends exactly 
what you're doing and how you can attract people. You know, Ian alluded earlier to domestic tourism in, in some places and in a place like Australia, that can make sense. In Singapore, there was a push a few weeks ago around staycations, but sometimes even that is not going to help you through. And then you may need to start looking at debt and how you structure your loans, structure your security packages, and even consider some divestment M&As if the situation gets drastic. Thanks, James. Now, building on top of what you just said, I just wanted to expand that further. How are the COVID-19 impacts on the hospitality and F&B sectors similar or are they different from those on the travel and aviation sectors? Is one in more trouble than the other? Well, the two are very heavily linked. It was interesting. There was a study released by Moody's just a few days ago talking about the impact in North America on, on different sectors. And they identified seven sectors that were most at risk, most high exposed. And in, in amongst those seven, you had gaming, lodging and leisure, passenger airlines and transportation and services as four of the, of the seven. Um, so it's clear it really does hit across the board. There's an interlinkage here. Tourism relies not only on the flight to bring the person there, the hotel room they stay in, but is also a boost into the local economy from everything from luxury goods, retail, to the average F&B player as well. So trouble is across the board. I think, as I said, the aviation industry, the airlines, it's a little bit easier to pick on one airline and, and work with them and look at the subsidies. But then what do you do about all the people that work at the airport? What do you do about all the catering companies? What do you do about all the all the hotels that then support those tourists? So it really does trickle down the line. And countries will not let their airlines go bust if there is anything they can do about it. However, unfortunately, a lot of smaller companies, no matter what the support is, will be affected. Okay. I'd like to also hear from uh, Tiffany as well as Ian. Maybe we'll start with Tiffany first. What are your thoughts on this? Are there any difference or similarities between the two? agree with James on this. I think that the impact uh, across the travel and tourism sector, including hospitality, travel and aviation is similar in that the travel and tourism industry has come to a standstill. Uh, I think the whole sector is struggling, that certain industries that have the highest fixed cost are likely to be, you know, more most heavily impacted. But, you know, we've seen industries like cruise, which virtually no longer operating, I, I saw recent data from Eurocontrol, which focuses on European air traffic, that showed that on uh, March 31st, there were 25,948 fewer flights or a drop of 86.1% to the equivalent day in 2019. Like James, I think that certain industries within travel and tourism are likely and have so far been granted packages such as aviation. But I think it's really important to also focus on uh, the other sectors or the other industries within travel and tourism. What are we talking about? OTAs, uh, GDSs that are very much linked to airlines, hospitality, uh, car rental, cruise lines, et cetera, as well as you know the 80% of SMEs, because many of these will face serious and are facing serious cash and liquidity issues and are very much at risk. All right. Ian, how about you? Um, I mean, as I look at airlines and hotels are probably somewhat linked with that, certainly cruise uh, ships are, I fear, in the worst shape. I, I don't think it's, I think they're all linked, but I don't think they're all going to be equally impacted. So, you know, food and beverage, people still need to eat and they have a fear about going out. So, 
you have to pivot your model. I, I think there's never been a better time for businesses to innovate, uh, to try new things and to partner with other players, uh, whether that be entertainment, whether that be, uh, you know, you may be not be transporting passengers, but maybe you should be transporting food or logistics or other things to get to people's places. So you have, you know, grocery companies that are drowning, but you have underutilized taxis. So there's opportunities here to utilize underutilized capacity. And, you know, there's great fear that uh, with the drop in airline passengers or airline traffic, cargo is now being underserved. So how can they pivot somewhat uh, as well? Hotels probably are in a bit tougher place than food and beverage, but, you know, once again, you have big meeting space. Can you be building virtual offices, uh, especially for the domestic businesses? Can you look at some kind of a portion of your business being a long-term stay, an alternative to apartments or other things for people where you provide them with food and other things? That might be another way. I, I think it really is a time where people are going to have to experiment and try new things. My advice to anybody is, just don't sit there and wait for the government to bail you out because the pockets can only be so deep and the void is big and deep and wide. You need to work with those that you owe money to, to your suppliers in order to manage your cash flow. And then you need to be constantly testing new things and figuring out who you can partner with to provide the consumer with new value in this environment. Not every business is, is down. You know, businesses are booming during this period of time too. So who's benefiting and how do you partner with them and how do you add value for them? As it relates to OTAs, could they pivot their distribution models to distribute different things? You know, you have how many restaurants, you have a bit of an oligopoly as it relates to food delivery. Could you pivot some of these things to enter that space as well and give uh, greater distribution opportunities and partner with taxis and other things to, to be able to do that? These are all questions and they're all areas of opportunity to explore, I would say. Ian, building on what you just said itself, how can organizations then manage people's expectations, nurture relationships and create trust so that customers can feel comfortable again to get on a plane, to stay at a hotel or even to go to restaurants? I would say first and foremost, complete transparency. We're in a difficult situation, so you can't over-communicate and talk about the things that you do. I think you it all starts with your staff and taking care of them through these difficult times and, and not misleading them in any way. And then, you know, you've got to change the way you do business. Uh, so how do you tangibilize perhaps the cleaning or the other work that has gone into things and to, uh, to think along those lines in order to be able to restore faith of the consumer uh, to get them to venture forth? Um, and that may mean that you do business in a way that is completely different than you had to do it in the past, but that may be the new normal as you move forward. So I, I think I would try and ponder it in those terms. In addition to that, your industries are also highly dependent on human capital. So to what extent is COVID-19 affecting employees' morale and confidence in their employers? Tiffany, maybe you can weigh in on this. I mean, I think this crisis has shaken everyone, regardless of which sector they worked in. And I think we'll need to rebuild confidence and capability within the industry's workforce. And I think it's going to be really important for companies to turn their workforce into travel ambassadors and advocates, uh, encouraging them also, once things get a bit better, to share things on social media. But I also think there's going to be a need in, you know, once we move to a new normal and to recovery to provide additional training, because I think that the world will integrate uh, digital in a very different way going forward. All right. Ian, do you have anything else to add to what Tiffany just mentioned? 
I mean, I would agree. I think it's an opportunity. Every crisis is also an opportunity. And so while you have staff that may be underutilized, and perhaps it's only voluntary if you aren't able to employ them, how do you still maintain training? How do you still maintain upscaling your workforce? Because the world and all of the macroeconomic forces, which I've said many times that I think the hospitality business will change more in the next 20 years than it has in the last 2000. Most businesses that I see are really not ready for that transition. So how do you start down that path and get people thinking and working differently? So as you emerge, you have a much more agile organization. And as I've mentioned, maybe some of this is voluntary to begin with, but at least you're still engaged with your staff. And I think people, it it gives them a sense of purpose and meaning in what they are doing. And they will be much more committed to the organization as it emerges. And James, I want to expand on that question based off what our guest just shared. What are the best practice examples of how leaders can proactively manage their stakeholders? So we've done a few studies. We've been been talking to a lot of uh, C-suite executives around the world around how they are engaging with their their stakeholders, not only their employees, but their their customers, their vendors, their suppliers. And a few clear patterns emerge. Firstly, it really comes from the heart. And that's exactly what Ian was just talking about. It's around how you treat the people, how you align the staff and the other stakeholders to the purpose of the organization, as well as the obligations that your organization has to society. So for example, we're seeing hotels serving as hospitals, food and beverage companies donating to needy or to health workers, which are are things that align with that. It's also important to really own your own narrative, paint that picture of what the future looks like, what is the path forward and make it compelling. What is the long view? How will we emerge from this? What will we learn in the journey? And I think one of the real learning points for a lot of C-suite has been that at this time, a lot of the time, it's about speed over elegance, that it's about being decisive, being courageous in what you do is perhaps more important than getting it perfect, um, especially when you have news breaking and all kinds of leaks happening around. Again, Ian talked about transparency, trust, building that relationship with your stakeholders, making sure your communication is clear, it's unified, it's frequent and that the tone is really right. So speaking of embracing the long view and to wrap things up, how can organizations use this downtime as an opportunity to develop a competitive advantage down the line on their path to recovery post-COVID-19? Perhaps we'll start with you, Ian. Well, where do I start? See, a crisis like this is an opportunity to change everything and to rethink your business. So I think that first and foremost, how are the forces of automation, analytics, data, artificial intelligence going to change the tourism business? And what does it look like in 10 years? Nobody has a real perfect view, but you need to have an opinion on that. And how do you get your organization moving in that direction? And how do you start laying the plans now and start building the momentum so that your company is already moving strongly in that way? Because we will never go back to how things were. The world will definitely be different as we emerge from this. And so we have to monitor the environment, but also have to have a view about the kind of the larger forces, whether that be demographics or the technology that I alluded to, or political forces, and how are you going to cope with that? So I I think it starts by forming a view of what the world looks like, and then a vision about how you're going to thrive and prosper within that. And then it's how do you communicate that? And then how do you start to prepare your teams for that? So Preparation in terms of the training of human capital, 
preparation in terms of some of the backhand work that could be done if you have utilized resources that are being underutilized right now, prepare for that. And then clarity in terms of the vision for your senior leaders so that you are able to execute uh, because success is execution, not good ideas through this crisis and as you emerge from it. Tiffany, what about you? What are your thoughts on this? I agree with Anne. I think, you know, the reality is that there will be a new normal. There's no doubt about it. And our sector will need to adapt, to be agile, so that it can survive and thrive in this new reality. I think, you know, there will be permanent changes, but I do believe that people will still want to travel and that face-to-face meetings are still better than virtual ones. There was, you know, this case after 9-11, where the way we viewed security and security protocols in airports and airlines changed significantly. And I think that there will be big changes around health and hygiene measures, but also actually around sustainability. You know, in terms of health and hygiene, from hotels to airlines to airports, I think there are going to be new protocols. It could be ventilation, cleanliness, checking people's temperature, etc., On the sustainability front, though, I think for the first time in a long time, we saw clear skies in China, in India, in Nepal, uh, you know, pollution-free world and a lack of plane in the skies. And I think the world is going to expect our sector to take sustainability even more seriously than we have and implement measures that are going to push us to reach our targets even more. I think what we did learn, though, from 9-11 is that not all policies are smart policies. And uh, a lot of governments or sometimes governments can implement knee-jerk reactions, which don't actually do a lot of good. So like taking your shoes off at the airport following 9-11, airports around the world face additional layers of security regulation, which cost the industry about $7.4 billion per year. And I think countries and companies alike really will need to be smart and focus on coming up with solutions to address the real challenge at hand rather than costly measures which temporarily soothe citizens but don't actually make a difference. I think that to thrive in this new normal, our sector will need to encourage travel and rebuild confidence. They'll need to focus on travelers. I think we'll also need to recognize, as was said earlier, that domestic travel will likely open up much sooner than international travel. And we'll need to provide incentives to encourage increased stays from, you know, competitive pricing to special promotions. But we'll also need to provide reassurance to travelers through better visibility of health and safety protocols and use the opportunity of restarting and regrowing, like I said, to build in sustainability even more meaningfully. And finally, James, do you think travel and hospitalities can use this to their advantage? Oh, I mean, definitely, yes. I mean, Ian touched on this point earlier. There was a fantastic meme going around the other day saying, who caused the digital transformation of your organization? Was it your CEO, your CIO, or COVID-19? And and I think that's the reality in a lot of organizations is it firstly giving us a time and a space to be able to focus on some of these initiatives, as Ian alluded to, particularly around digital But it's also making clear that there are advantages to digital, particularly in terms of the human capital side of things, that if you could use RPA, if you could use artificial intelligence to do some of these tasks, then in the event of a situation like this, it would not be so damaging to your business. So I think digital technology will come on leaps and bounds. And for organizations that are ready to take that opportunity, now is a great time. And along a similar vein, we're seeing a lot of organizations looking at their supply chain and looking to de-risk that supply chain, whether it's around their operations, whether it's around their source suppliers. 
And that also gives a great opportunity that, that Tiffany alluded to a little bit around sustainability, that we so often say we want to be more sustainable, we want to go green, but when you're running a 24-7, 365 business, it can be very difficult to take those steps to improve the sustainability in, in your supply chain and, and in your business. And again, this presents that opportunity. So business will come back. It will take time, as we've said repeatedly on this podcast. And steps will have to be taken to get that trust. But eventually, at the end of the day, same as we saw after 9-11 and after other major shocks over the years, eventually it will return to normal levels. Travel will return. Tourism will return. Expenditure will return and eventually grow even higher than it was before. All right. Thank you all for that insightful view into how hospitality, tourism and travel can hopefully and eventually bounce back stronger. I'd like to thank once again our guests today for joining us on this episode, Tiffany Misrahi, Ian Wilson, and James Walton. As the situation continues to unfold, we here at Deloitte want our hospitality and travel players to know that we are always here for them. And that's it for this episode of Thriving in Volatile Times. If you want to comment on this podcast or the topics covered, you can send us an email. The address is cpodcast at deloitte.com. That's spelled S-E-A podcast at deloitte.com or head on to our website, Thriving in Volatile Times. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get the latest episodes. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. I'm Dishraf Elias and until next time, 